0: Good morning, church. Our reading today is from Joshua 13, 1 through 7. I am Jewel Greenwood, and it is my pleasure to read his word. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Jezerites, From the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundaries of the Amorites, and the land of the Jebelites, and all the Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebahamoth, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from, from Lebanon to Mesirapothmeim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, God. You may be seated. So. Uh, Real quick before we jump in, Uh, my name is Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and I just want to take a second, Um, today is a special day in our history, September 11th, we will always remember, and so I just wanted to to say thank you to all of our first responders, all of our firefighters, um, police officers, all of our um, military servicemen and women, and veterans, thank you, genuinely thank you for your service. Um, I'm going to pray, but before we do that, can we just say thank you uh, with a round of applause to those? Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we remember... What today means. And in our remembering, we still mourn, we still grieve the loss, the pain, the anger of being attacked and losing fellow citizens of ours, our brothers and sisters. And so, God, we bring this to you. We bring this morning to you. And we trust that you'll be with us. And, God, we, as we mourn um, those specific things, we also mourn the brokenness of our world. We mourn the power behind the deception of false religions, false gods, that would lead your people astray to harm one another. We pray that your spirit would prevail in heaven as it is, in, on earth as it is in heaven. God, we, we ask that you would heal our land. We ask that you would heal our souls. Would you let us not forget this pain? Would you let us not forget that you redeem and restore and you heal? God, we, we love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name and his authority. Amen. All right, uh, thank you for that. Um, well, it's good to be back in Joshua. Um, we're going to be working through all of chapter 13. Now, there was a purpose of me asking Joe to read verses 1 through 7. Joe, great job on those pronunciations. Um, that's why I asked you to read this this week and not me. But uh, there's a long list of names of tribes and kingdoms, uh, families that were left in the land, uninhabited land. Um, and so we'll get to that in just a second, but the, the purpose of that passage is to remind us that one, the job's not done, but two, we're still left waiting. There are 12 more chapters in Joshua. And what God says in chapter 13 that there is yet much land to possess will remain true through the rest of Joshua. Israel's left waiting. But there's more that they're left waiting for. So as we go through um, this sermon, we're going to have to spend a bulk of time, because we took a few weeks off of of Joshua, we're going to have to take a bulk of time to recap the first 12 chapters. And in those first 12 chapters, What we're going to do is prepare our time for the next 10 weeks. Because for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be working out uh, the following 12 chapters. So it's not going to be even one chapter at a time sometimes. We're going to take chunks because there's like chapters 15 through 19 is all the rest of the inheritance, uh, the allotment given out. We're going to take that in in one swoop. So... um, when we, as we're preparing that 10 weeks, I want to give kind of a framework for how we read Joshua. Remember, Joshua follows Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah, the Hebrew um, Torah, which is the foundation of our religion, the foundation of Judaism, ancient Judaism, and the foundation of Christianity. And so we take these first five books in the Torah, uh, and we understand that Joshua is written to a people who know those books, so we have, to, um, we have to keep that in mind. So I'm going to give you a three-point structure to how we're going to walk through. This is kind of our outline of how we're going to pace ourselves this morning. Um, it's also a pretty general structure for Bible study. So if you just want some help in understanding how do I study the Bible, what do I need to be thinking of as I'm studying, um, I've got three points and I'm going to apply them specifically to Joshua, but I'll give you some language that will that may help you apply them just in general. So first, we have to remember the context. The context of Joshua 13 is in light of chapters 1 through 12. We have to remember the first 12 chapters in order to understand what chapter 13 is saying. And that's very important because chapters 1 through 12 sets up this this march through Israel. Chapter 12 ends with this proclamation of, like, here's all the victories we've won. And then chapter 13 has a different tone. And for us to catch the tone of chapter 13, we have to know what was said in the first 12 chapters. So first, remember the context of, of whatever passage you're reading. Read before and after. The second point is that we must remember to read with the original audience. Now, it is true that the Holy Spirit wrote all of Scripture for us today. That is true. But it is also true that it was first written to a specific people of a specific time, of a specific culture, of a specific way of thinking and seeing the world and the Bible. So for us to know what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in Joshua, we have to know what the Holy Spirit was saying to them in Joshua. That's true throughout Scripture. Remember to read with the original audience. Joshua 13 gives us a picture in a very um, specific way, gives us a picture that Joshua is not the leader that Israel had hoped and expected for him to be. But we will not catch that unless we read with ancient Israel. That'll make more sense, and I'll I'll walk you through that. That'll make more sense when we go, um, when we look at what the audience was understanding from Genesis and Deuteronomy. And the third point is to find God in the text. Now, that order is important. Remember the context. Remember the whole of what is being said. Read with the original audience, and then find God in the text. God will reveal himself through these steps. Scripture is always about who God is and what he's doing, always. It has a different flavor, so sometimes it tells us about his character. It emphasizes who he is. Sometimes it tells us more about what he's doing. It tells us his plan and his promises. And sometimes it helps us see how God invites us to be a part. Many times it's a combination of these All of scripture will always tell us who God is and what he's doing. And sometimes we get to see how we're involved. Because Joshua was not the leader that Israel had hoped and expected, we can learn uh, how God calls us to wait on him, to depend on him as we wait for him to fulfill his promises. Now, those are the three points. Remember the context read with the original audience, and find God in the text. Okay, so let's remember the context. We mentioned before that in Joshua 13, what is being communicated in Joshua 13 depends on the first 12 chapters. They have this, this great anticipation of victory in battle, right? Um, <clears throat> chapter 12 ends with this repetition Uh, And then these kings were defeated, and then these kings were defeated, and these kings were defeated. And it it just feels like a military march through the land. But then in in Joshua 13, we see that there's a disappointment. Joshua is old and advanced in years. He's not the guy. He's not going to finish the job. It's this disappointment that, that we're meant to be reading with the original audience, that things have not gone how we expected. They didn't do what we expected them to do. We've been let down. We feel disappointed. And each of us in our own lives has an experience with being disappointed, don't we? What are you still waiting for that feels like, man, I've been praying for this too long? I've waited. Months, years, decades. To see my child come to know Jesus. To be healed of this disease. To find a church that just will will stop letting me down. This persistence of unsatisfied longings. The persistence of unsatisfied longings is a fancy way to say something that we haphazardly and innocuously sometimes just pass by and say, we're just waiting. But in that word waiting, we hold a lot of emotion. As we wait for babies. As we wait for restoration. We wait to be reconciled with our brother or sister. I've been waiting for 12 years I was diagnosed with a chronic illness 12 years ago. And since then, few days have passed that I have not prayed for healing. And I wonder in fear what will the rest of my days look like? Will the stress of pastoral ministry take me out? Will I get to finish this job that I love? that I was made for. How will my future look like with my kids? Will I get to grow old with my wife? The fear and sadness of waiting creates in me a deep longing to be healed. And I want to give you this example because we all have this thing we're waiting for. That, that feeling that you felt when I'm telling my story, what's the feeling of your story that you're waiting for? You could be feeling it right now. Or it could be, have, you could have been waiting for so long that now it's just numb. Now we've grown cold and hard and we just don't know, am I even... Should I even bother? That feeling is the feeling of anticipation and dependence that Israel is coming into in Joshua chapter 13. They're longing for their Savior. They're longing for their God to come and rescue them. They're longing to be in this land of promise, flowing with milk and honey, prosperity, fruitfulness, harmony with one another, harmony with their God in heaven. They are longing to to not have to wait anymore. And then we read Joshua 13 and we hear these words. Joshua was old and advanced in years. Years. So, a little more zooming in on the context. Israel comes into the story of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 begins with Israel waiting. The book picks up where Deuteronomy left off. God promised to give Israel some land, massive piece of land that was fruitful. They wouldn't have to worry about anything It was a land of promise, and God promised to be there with them. He put Joshua in charge of leading this nation into the land. It was already full of people by now, full of people that they had to wipe out. So that's a massive task, and Joshua is afraid. I think every one of us would be afraid as well. But God maintains his faithfulness, and he says, You don't have to be controlled by your fear. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will not let you go. Just keep following me. Remember me. Abide with me. Remain in me. Don't swerve. Don't take off to the left or to the right. I'll be with you. I will not let you go. And within just a mere few chapters... Not even years have passed by in the history in Israel and Joshua have sinned. They've been disobedient. They've been thoughtless and careless and lazy. They engaged in a promise that they did not ask God for instruction or wisdom on. Yet God says, well, you swerved. You took off to the left and to the right. You failed, but I will not fail. I will not let you go. I'm still with you. This, this context of chapters 1 through 12 ends with God. God doesn't even remind Israel that they failed in chapter 12. He just reminds them of all the victories, all the battles he won, all the power he gave his people. This is the context that we're coming into in in chapter 13, this desperate longing for for a a rescuer, hope that maybe it's Joshua. We're winning all these battles. He's our leader, and God's still faithful to us, and Joshua still prays. So we come into chapter 13, with God saying this, I'm going to summarize these, the, the 12 chapters in what God is saying, not necessarily what happens, because it's important for us to remember that the book of Joshua is a book of history, but it's a, it's a book of prophetic history. Joshua fits in the Hebrew scriptures as the first book of the prophets. That alone tells us how we can read Joshua that God is saying something very specific through the history of his people in Joshua. And because it's the first book, it's used to connect to the previous, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books are combined as the Torah, and Joshua links them into the rest of Scripture to show us who God is and what he's doing. So this is what God is saying in the first 12 chapters of Joshua and what he's saying throughout scripture, because Joshua is a book of prophecy. God says, I'm inviting you into something much bigger than you. Something that you cannot fulfill on your own. Depend on me. Trust me to be in control. I won't let you go. I won't let go of my promises. You will fail I will not. And it's this eager anticipation, this excitement, this desperate longing that we come into chapter 13 and then it just like falls flat. Joshua was old and advanced in years. That phrase has been used in Scripture before. It will be used again. Where it's been used before it's when God made a promise to another man who was old and advanced in years. And so we turn back to uh, Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Um, I've got the, the quotes on the screen, but you're welcome to. I'm gonna kind of blitz through four quotes from the Torah that will catch us up to this promise that leaves Israel waiting, that, that, that gives meaning and depth to Joshua thirteen. Genesis twelve two. God promises Abraham, man in his nineties, that he would have a land, that he would have a family. Let me remind you, Abraham is childless, and God promises, God promises Abraham a land and a family. Abraham gets to see the land. He doesn't get to see the fullness of the family. He's, he gets to see one part of it. And he's left waiting. Joshua, Abraham dies waiting for God to fulfill his promise to fill this land that he promised him with people, with his sons and daughters. Abraham died waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. Now, it's also important for me to tell you that the promise of Joshua 12 is anchored in another promise that comes even sooner in Genesis. The first book of the Bible, we're 12 chapters in, and there's a promise built on another promise, yes, Genesis 3, 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is known by scholars as the, let me, let me just pronounce this correctly, I'm going to read it, Protoevangelium. That's the first gospel, the first preaching of the promise of salvation from God to his people. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve sin against God. They distrust him, they disobey him, they cross a boundary that was set for them not to cross. And in verse 15, God promises his people that he will save them from sin by sending them a son. The son who will crush the head of sin and death and Satan forever. Now why is Genesis 3 linked to Genesis 12? Why is it the promise of a son to crush and defeat the power of sin, death, and Satan forever linked to the promise to Abraham to have a land and a family? Because the son has to have a family to come through. has to come through the people that sinned and we're on earth we're made of flesh so the son must come to earth he has to have a place to be fully human he has to put on flesh to be fully human so the promise of genesis 3 sets the foundation for the promise of genesis 12 but genesis ends ends Still waiting. We don't know who the son is. Many men come. Many sons come, but they all die. They all fail. They all sin. And we're left waiting. The book of Exodus comes up, and we see a son from the people. We see Moses emerge as the leader of of Israel. But in Deuteronomy 18, now, before I do that. Moses was a huge deal. Before I do that, are we okay? Are we, are we following here? I've gone through, I've gone through Genesis, tiptoed in, into Exodus. Are we okay? We've got two more Old Testament quotes to go through. May help to, you know, like when you were taking the standardized testing in school and you get halfway through, and you're like, all right, everybody stand up and stretch. Now's your your time to stand up and stretch, take a breath, take a swig of water. I'm going to do that. Moses was such a big deal to Israel because he's the guy that led Israel out of slavery in Egypt into this promised land. They got the promise. Moses is taking us there. In many ways, Moses gives us a picture of the sun. And Israel's kind of putting all their eggs in that basket, saying Moses has got to be the guy. This dude's face glows. Read Exodus. But in, in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, so Moses Moses is the, the primary leader and character through um, that God uses through Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the last four books of the Torah. Moses is a big deal. But in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses himself announces that he's not the son. He says, God will give you another prophet, a prophet that's better than me. The son you're waiting for, he's coming. In the book of Deuteronomy, all of the Torah ends... In Deuteronomy 34, in verse 10, we're still waiting for the sun. The story of Moses ends saying, no prophet has arisen like Moses. That son at the very beginning that was promised. Now, I want, I want you to have in mind, the original audience of Joshua at this time, all they have is the Torah, that's the text for them, And they're reading this book, Joshua, that's included with the Torah, continuing the story and wondering, what is happening? The Torah ends with us waiting. I thought this would be the guy. But Moses says, no, I'm not the guy. And then God puts Joshua in charge. Expectation, anticipation, desperation, this longing. For the son. Who is the son from Genesis 3? Who is this blessing from Genesis 12? Who's the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 and 34? Well, we learn it's not Moses. And now we learn in Joshua 13 it's not Joshua. And it feels like mission left unaccomplished. It feels like promises left unfulfilled. God's people left unsaved. A land left unpossessed. Brokenness left unrestored. Prayers left unanswered. We're all left waiting. Now, this there's a term for when, when we think that we are in a better place in history. It's called chronological snobbery. I think C.S. Lewis may have coined that term, chronological snobbery, that, that because we're in 2022, we're smarter, we're better off, we have modern medicine, we have the internet, we're better, right? Um, we have craft coffee. <laughs> I knew that would get Brian. And so it's easy for us to feel that way, but in one, one way that this is, is true about the information that we have, this doesn't make us better. Because of where we exist in history, we are not better than ancient Israel. And I would even argue that we're, we're probably not even smarter. But we do have the privilege of being on this side of Jesus. Because we can see at this point that the Son has come. The Son that we've been waiting for, the blessing, the prophet, is Jesus. Deuteronomy ends, the Torah ends, says, We're waiting. Joshua begins with hope, and then 13 it says, Nope, still waiting. The category of the prophets ends, still waiting. The Psalms ends still waiting and Matthew begins. Like Joshua 1 through 12 tells us, we will fail. God will not fail. He will not let us go. Because he sent us the son, he's given us the blessing, he sent to us the prophet. Not only did, did he send us the Son, the Son died for us. This, this sin and death that Adam and Eve began, that's our problem too. That's our responsibility too. This is the world we live in, but the Son took that for us. When he died on the cross, and he spilled his blood as the perfect sacrifice because he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live this promise, God fulfilled it. On the cross, the head of Satan, the power of sin and death was crushed forever. But that's not the end of the story because Jesus rose from the dead. And what does that resurrection tell us? It tells us that the the blessing of Genesis 12, the promise of the Son in Genesis 3, the hope of Deuteronomy 34, is that one day not only the the power of sin and death and Satan would be destroyed, but they and in their entirety would be wiped out. That there is one day that we will be with our Father in heaven, living in perfect peace and harmony on a new heavens, a new earth, new bodies restored. Relationship restored. Come on. This is the promise of Genesis 3, Genesis 12, and Deuteronomy 18 and 34, that we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait because we have Jesus. And as great of a promise as this is, and it's an incredible promise, we have eternity. We put our faith and our hope in Jesus, to be who he says he is, to be that son, we have eternity with the Father now. We don't have to wait for that. As great as that promise is, there is just a piece that we're left waiting for. A fraction of this promise of the son that we do long for because we know this world is broken, right? Like, it doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not. There's something messed up about our hearts and how we treat each other and the world that we live in, that nature's coming after us. And so we are waiting for the power of sin and death and Satan to be demolished permanently, forever. We are waiting for this new heavens and new earth. Our hope for it begins now. It began when we trusted in him. The reality of it began then, but we wait for it to come as a reality. We wait for Jesus to come back. Read like the last 12 verses of Revelation. It's just like John repeating, Jesus, come back, please. We're waiting for you. Please come back. Hey, my name's John. Say hi to these people. Jesus, please come back. And we can trust because God kept his promise. We can trust that God will keep his promise to come back for us. Now, what do we do? What do we do while we wait? Let's look. Uh, specifically at Joshua 13, verses 6 and 7. And I'm reading these in light of verses 8 through 33. Uh, Verses 6 through 7. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to whatever Joe said, even all the Sidonians, here we go, I myself, this is God speaking, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land of Israel for an inheritance. Here's the other thing. As I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. And Joshua obeyed. Those last 25, 26 verses is Joshua obeying God when he says divide the land. So there's two things in verse 6 specifically that I want to look at. God says, I myself will drive them out. This is God telling us, depend on me, just like at the very beginning when I told you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be controlled by your fears. Just trust me. Depend on me. I will drive them out. We get a story. I, I'd encourage you to read back through the first twelve verses or first twelve chapters of Joshua, because we get a story of when, when Joshua and Israel distrusted God to drive them out in the battle of AI, and they're like, "No, we got this. Like, we're we're smart people. God, we can figure this one out." And they go and lose a battle, and then God takes them back and outsmarts them, outsmarts AI too. But he says, depend on me. I myself will drive them out. The second thing in verse six, trust and obey. While we wait, we depend on God. And while we wait, we trust and we obey. He says at the end of verse six, only allot the land land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Do what I've asked you to do. While we wait, we depend on God and we trust and obey. That sounds a lot like faith, right? What is faith? Depending on God, walking in obedience because we trust Him. Scripture defines faith as hoping for something we can't see, right? Believing that it will come true. There's a promise that's left unfulfilled. I have faith that God will fulfill it. God reminds Israel that they're still waiting for the Messiah, and he invites them to have faith that he's still fulfilling his promises. He will send him, but there's work yet to be done. Now, again, in our chronological snubbery, we have Jesus. We have the Son. The Son became human. He became one of us, he came from among his brothers like Deuteronomy 18 promised. He became human flesh to be like us, to know how we suffer. And in, um, in the life of Jesus, he showed us how to be truly human. So he came to as a human to suffer as a human, just like we suffer, but then to show us how to suffer. He suffers like us to show us then how to, how to wait on God, how to walk in faith through our suffering. And he also suffered for us in our place, giving us the ultimate blessing of forgiveness and kindness and mercy. Genesis 3 fulfilled, Genesis 12 fulfilled. Je- Jesus paid that penalty of sin that we talked about, defeating the power of sin and death and Satan. And then one day he'll come again. I'm saying this, I'm recalling this, to build up for you a foundation of God keeping his promises because we have something to hope in. Not only is there a promise that we're waiting for, but we have the object of our faith, Jesus. God proved himself to be true by sending us his son. But it's not just salvation, salvation. It's not just that one day we'll be made new. It's that right now, Jesus satisfies your longings. My longing to be healed, as I sit with the fear and the sadness of what's the future of my life gonna look like, my longing to be healed is satisfied in Jesus because I know that it doesn't matter how the rest of my life turns out. That's who I have. I'm not alone alone. I have the promise, and the promise of salvation, the promise of harmony forever with my Father in heaven because of Jesus is better than being healed. That's what I want. The thing that my my soul longs for here on this earth, I can give that up. I don't want to trade my Father in heaven for healing It's not to say that we have to. We still ask. I still pray and trust that he would. Now, while we wait, we depend on God, we trust and obey, right? But we, really, we have two responses. We can do that. Our first response, because we're still broken sinful humans, our first response will be to fight for control of our own lives. While we wait, we fight for control of our own lives. If you turn just a few pages over to the book of Judges, at the end of Joshua, Joshua says, hey, choose this day who you'll serve. Trust God or serve yourself. Then read the book of Judges. It's gruesome. Because Israel chooses to serve themselves, to distrust God, to go and fight for the land on their own. This is called sin. We've, we've like, begun with some pretty fancy definitions and then simplified. That's our, our third and final one, All right? We, we fancifully defined waiting, a persistent longing. We fancifully defined faith depending on God and trusting and obeying him. Distrusting God, fighting for control of our own lives, that's sin. And in Israel's sin and judges, they effectively become God's enemies. And when we live a life of persistent sin, taking control of our own lives, we make ourselves enemies with God. This is a dangerous path that scripture constantly shows us leads to nothing but death. There is no hope in controlling your own life. There's only darkness. Our other option is to wait on Jesus in faith, trusting that our deepest longings are satisfied in him, trusting that we can cling to him and he won't let us go being dependent on Jesus and trusting that he's come to us to set us free from sin and death. Today, we have freedom from sin and death. It doesn't have power over us anymore. But we also trust that he will come back. And it won't be a struggle to be free from sin and death. The son shows us how to live by faith. As the object of our faith, he's also the example of our faith. Jesus shows us how to live by faith when we look in the Gospels at his relationship with the Father. Jesus teaches us to wait, to be dependent, to obey by prayer. Prayer is the only true and effective beginning to depend on God. God. It's one of the things that, that, that identifies the Christian. If you have faith, you will pray. Now, many of us struggle with faith, uh, prayer. I still struggle with prayer. I remember very specifically a time in my life a few years ago where prayer just felt empty. It felt almost boring sometimes, and other times it felt overwhelming. I just I couldn't. Couldn't get the energy to pray. And so if you if you feel like prayer is a struggle, if you feel like no one's listening to you, um, if you feel like, man, I've been praying for these things and I just don't think God hears me. Or maybe He's not responding. Maybe there's something I'm not doing right. I'd ask you to, to practice something. Take a journal or some note cards. Think back the last three months, the last six months, the last year, whatever the last three weeks or three days, whatever time time frame you want, write down the things that you've prayed for. Write down what you're praying for now. And when you pray, write those things down. And every now and then look back and just circle all the things that have been answered that you might have missed. God will not let us go. He will keep his promises. He does hear us because his son stands before us. And even when we don't have the energy or the words to pray, Jesus prays. The Holy Spirit prays through us, through our groanings. Now, if you also are like me and you get bored or you get overwhelmed, I want you to know something fundamental about prayer. It is not a place to perform. Prayer is not a space where God needs you to be polished and tidy. God can handle your honesty. It's a place for you to be, to be yourself, to be disappointed, to be honest with God, to be angry, to be hurt. It's a place to be grateful. It's a place to be yourself, who you really are before God is who God accepts. Author and pastor Dustin Binge puts it this way. This is what he has to say about prayer. There is no greater power that the church possesses than to converse with our Heavenly Father. No greater power. He doesn't say there's no greater power that the church has than to plant churches. There's no greater power that the church has than to make disciples. There's no greater power that the church has than to read scripture. There's no greater power, whatever you want to put there, there is no greater power than to pray. Because when we pray, we're letting go of control of our own lives, and we're depending on God to be God. You've heard us define, you may have heard us define prayer before. We pray because we depend on God, right? Another way, another thing that we say is, um, prayer is talking to God or, or being with God, sometimes talking. So you can pray and just not say anything and you're still praying. In prayer, we let go of control of our own lives and we depend on God to be God. So while we wait, we depend on God, and we trust and obey. While we wait for Jesus to come back, while we wait for our neighbor to be saved, for our child to be saved, while we wait for us to have kids, maybe some of us are waiting for kids to move out. While we wait to know, what does my future look like here? while we wait for answers, while we wait for healing, while we wait for restoration, while we wait for Jesus, while we wait, depend on God and trust and obey. Communion is our tangible reminder that while we depend on God, his promised son Jesus satisfies our every need. So when you get the elements, we've got a table in the back, we've got two up here on the sides. When you get the elements, take those, whether you take it by yourself or with your family, take those and just reflect, what are we waiting for? What are my deepest longings? And as you take that crispy wafer and grape-flavored Kool-Aid, representing the body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ spilled for the forgiveness of sins and the newness of life, Remember that your longings are satisfied in Jesus. Depend on him and trust him while we wait. He will come back for us. Jesus, please come. And that sounds like enough. Please come.